forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm your host, Jessa Crispin. Enter here the usual spiel. Um, Public Intellectual is supported by its listeners. If you would like to become a supporter, please go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. I really appreciate the support of everyone who donates through Patreon. And I try to express it through exclusive writings, bonus episodes, and the usual benefits. Go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. When we talk about international travel and international migration these days, we tend to talk about its ease. It is relatively inexpensive, um, at least compared to the decades in the past. And with the open borders of Europe and so on, it's seen to be relatively simple to start over your life in a new place. But, of course, there are certain demographics to which this kind of lifestyle is available, and there are others who will find barriers that are unexpected. And then, what happens when you find yourself in trouble in this new place where you live? That is the very interesting question that begins Nancy Green's The Limits of Transnationalism, which looks at, well, what the book says, the limits on this sort of freedom of movement that is prized and also the source of much consternation through Brexit and the war at America's borders at the moment. So we talked to Green about the difficulties um, rather than the sunshiny version of events that you often hear in the media. I guess my first question is about the word transnationalism. So why this specific word and not something like expat or migrants, et cetera? Well, that's a good question. And then the other question sometimes is why not globalization? Um, the issue is specifically that I deal with is mostly around migration. The term transnational and transnationalism has become a big buzzword. It really in the his, in writing of history, sociologists as well over the last oh even more than twenty years now, more than twenty five years. And the interest in the term, it seems to me, comes from what it sounds like, just being beyond nationalism. So there were then there have been debates about well, what kind of beyondness and what does that mean? And it means a lot of things for different people, and it means a lot of things for different academics. It's been used widely, sometimes just to mean looking at some place other than your own, where you're writing from. It can mean people moving about. It can mean things moving across borders. I look at it mostly in terms of migration history. So when transnationalism was first heralded in the early 1990s as something new by anthropologists and sociologists of migration, uh, it seemed kind of self-evident that migrants cross borders, so they are transnational. 
So, in fact, historians were saying, well, we've been studying this for a long time. You know, migration has been occurring for a long time. And what's new about it? So there's been a big debate about the newness. So the term itself is used variously. It's become kind of popular in certain academic circles. It is on a couple of uh, book covers uh, that I've been involved with. It becomes the big, the word that is, you know, most prominent, even if there's sort of a critique in the total title, the word that pops out most is transnationalism, uh, which, you know, gets to the, the idea of how that has become a word of interest. Expats, I talk a lot about expats often, and I define myself as a historian of migration. So clearly those are the main subjects that I'm that I'm interested in and then the main people that I'm interested in. The other term though sometimes is globalization and the use of globalization is sort of concomitant with the use of the term transnationalism. So transnationalism starts to become popular in a way at the same time that a lot of the talk about globalization came up. It's a bit later, I would say, transnationalism, but globalization became itself is a kind of a recent buzzword. It's interesting to me that just this past week, the political rhetoric in the United States uh, started up again against cosmopolitans. Um, which I guess is like another kind of word to uh, to summarize this idea. Um, and so putting aside like the anti-Semitic Just history of that word. I'm afraid you're cutting um, out. I didn't hear your last few I words. Am, okay, let me start the question up again. Um, I find it interesting that political rhetoric in the United States has started up again against um, the cosmopolitans and putting aside the sort of anti-Semitic history of that kind of language. Um, I am interested in how that sort of correlates with what you wrote about the suspicion that the origin country or the country of birth has to the transnational, um, in that there's sort of nothing new about this idea that if somebody leaves a place, they are suspicious to that place. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so they're both suspicious to the place of origin, actually, as maybe being seen as traitors to their place of origin. But also the term cosmopolitanism and cosmopolitan is very interesting because it has not just, it has had a, a, an anti-Semitic connotation, a very strong anti-Semitic connotation, but it's also had a strong class connotation um, in terms of kind of the upper elites who did and have historically, so it's not something that's new, who traveled in social circles and, and traveled back and forth from the 19th century into the 20th century and met in high-class salons and um, you know various places where it was really a, a, a group of elites that who were you know they could be even have uh, titles be entitled nobility from uh, in Europe uh, American or even those even people who didn't work but who had you know uh, money from uh, wealth so the the rentier class so the term cosmopolitanism has been used in various ways and sometimes positively but often negatively to criticize both, I would say, a class and then specific people who are too transnationals. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. It's another term 
really for transnationals. It's one that carries and is being mm-hmm. used once again uh, as a uh, as a derogatory term uh, to question people's loyalties. And I think that's one of the cruxes of the problem. It, but it's one for all classes, for all groups who have crossed borders, which the term transnationalism implies, who have crossed borders at some point in their lives and have, you mm-hmm. know, maneuvered. I'm interested in um, how reluctant we are to discuss American emigration and, you know, with an E, uh, rather than all the conversation seems to be about immigration, people coming to America. Um, but the effect that the, um, even to the point where you would refer to an American in another country as an expat rather than a, rather than an immigrant. Um, so you, you were sort of studying a specific time, um, in, and a specific place, which is Europe and France, but what is the effect that these sort of American colonies, um, as, as they were called in Paris in the early 20th century, have on their host countries? And why is it so infrequently studied? Well, I think that on the one hand, they weren't the only colonies. The term was used for immigrant groups, even in the you know lower east side of New York uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. But in the case of in Europe, for example, and in Paris in particular, the term colonies was used for often also for sort of um, upper middle class groups, such as the Americans, the British, uh, there were South Americans, all of whom one could call cosmopolitans as well, and they sometimes hobnobbed with one another's. The American colony in Paris uh, was one of the, it was one of the largest groups of Americans abroad at the turn of the 20th century. And it was a group of well-to-do um, their children, sometimes just to spend a good deal in, in, in fact, the majority of the year uh, in, in Europe, and sometimes to do business, uh, many times actually to do business. So the businessmen going overseas starts in the late 19th century. It's not a new phenomenon. So these American colonies, however, had really been little studied because the history of the United States has been one largely of the history of immigration of people coming to the United States. And also, I think rightfully say, rightfully so, a history of workers coming to the United States, which is how the United States was peopled for at least in, during the, you know, second half of the 19th century and the 20th century. A lot of the U.S. was built thanks to immigrants coming to the United States. So focusing on Americans who leave the United States has been less well studied. It's it's not it shouldn't replace the other form of study, but it's something I think that's important because it also shows how the United States defines itself in terms of those people who are abroad. And frankly, on the one hand, they're doing business and doing things in a way for the aggrandizement of the United States, of course, for their own business purposes. At the same time, they're sometimes being seen suspiciously, even by other business interests in the United States, certain political interests. So this whole idea of expats is an interesting concept. The term itself isn't used until after the Second World War. But the notion and the fact of Americans leaving the United States to do business abroad, to go abroad for various reasons and to stay there for you know lengthy periods of time, if not settling abroad, uh, is something that just hadn't really been studied much and I think needs to be included in a history of mobility, in a history of 
um, of the United States, as well as the history of France or other places where they have settled. So your one of your other books was about the, the so-called other Americans in Paris. So much has been written about the artists and the Bohemians, um, but uh, as you point out, and honestly, I didn't even know this, that there was so much larger population of businessmen and lawyers and so on, Americans living in Paris at the same time. Um, do we let our romantic ideas about uh, being in Europe and so on sort of cloud the reality of what the history of uh, migration has been, I guess? Well, I think it's great to read the classic um, expats of the uh, of the the expatriates. They weren't yet called expats of the uh, of the 1920s in Paris, for example, and their reflections on being abroad, their reflections on being foreigners abroad, uh, and on the whole process of movement, mobility, exile, temporary or not. Nonetheless, it is true that if you look at the numbers of Americans abroad and what they were doing there, uh, there were many more who had gone to do business. And the from already before World War One, there were as part of Americans rising economic influence in the world, uh, there were business people who went abroad to do business. And there are major companies who set up in Europe well before World War One. Um, National Harvester, uh, the um, uh, Singer Sewing Company. Anyway, there are many of them. But after World War I, one could almost say, and this is, I, one can see it even in the archives and in the writings of the American Chamber of Commerce in Paris, which was set up before World War I, that World War I becomes kind of a moment of opportunity. In fact, both world wars will be for American business, moments of opportunity. The U.S. would suffer during the wars, suffer loss of soldiers, etc., but nothing, nothing like what, of course, Europe was suffering. And the, there were certain opportunities as a result of the, of the wars. So in the 19, right immediately after World War I, there is an, there's an influx of Americans who are seeking to do business, who come to Europe. Well, some of them will get discouraged because it's not that easy. And so we'll go back after, after a little while. But for a lot of them, this is the moment in which they start attempting to settle, to do licensing agreements, to um, distribute their goods in Europe and then start maybe manufacturing them there and doing other kinds of business. So the banks come, uh, there have been bank, American banks in, in Europe and in France since the 19th century, but after World War I, because of the um, loans that the U.S. gave to uh, Europe, to France, in order to help uh, support the war, there will be, the banking industry will expand in finance and, and manufacturing. People will come to try and sell all kinds of things from, you know, nuts and bolts to mm -hmm. uh, agricultural harvesting machinery to, again, the sewing machines, but also um, all kinds of uh, even machinery and, um, and consumer goods. The same would happen after World War II. And in fact, when I started working on this and I talked about Americanization, many people thought, oh, well, Americanization, it really starts after World War II and the Marshall Plan, um, which in gave both help to Europe and at the same time helped American companies get in, get started and or get settled 
or become more active in uh, in Europe, in in France in particular. The that being said, the Americanization is both perceived and is happening well before that. And I think it's through these transnationals, it's through these expats or these expatriates of another sort who are not just those who are, as I've often said, those the writers were fleeing a kind of modernity and they liked coming to Europe because they felt there was another kind of culture and another basis of, of, of uh, interest that they sought in Europe. The business people were bringing their modernity with them and wanting to sell it. So it's a completely different group. There are some contacts between them, not a whole lot, but there are some. And uh, it's in any case, uh, I think, uh, important to understand as part of the history of the United States and its activities in terms of business expansion over the 20th century. I'm really interested in uh, the sort of contemporary American colonies of sort of digital nomads, um, people who work specifically in tech and who sort of cluster in places like um, Istanbul and Ukraine and Indonesia, which are all kind of volatile places. But as you sort of write, like there is this history of Americans abroad sort of having this unconscious belief in uh, their exceptionalism that America will sort of fish them out if anything goes awry. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and the sort of various uh, ways that people believe in, in uh, either consulate or money or attorneys to handle those problems? Right. So there is, in fact, an older history to this sort of um, ec economic activity abroad. And there is an older history of this belief their exceptionalism, I think, is of different sorts. The the American Chamber of Commerce kept arguing it. They were arguing in favor of Franco-American trade, but they also clearly were arguing in terms of American trade in particular. Um, so there was a kind of, if not exceptionalism, and at least a sense of self-worth of the, of the U.S. business community. Um, I don't know if the term exceptionalism is... For those who go to, well, let's say the other use of the term exceptionalism is for those who, yes, go to the embassy, go to the consulate when they get into trouble. And they could be of all classes of Americans abroad and expect that the government is going to help them. So the um, the kind of hubris was of, of this notion, which is also linked, however, to a reality, which is that um, consulates are there for to help their, they're not only there to filter people who want to come to a place, but they're also there in theory to protect their own citizens who are abroad. Now, citizens abroad can do a variety of things. Some of them can be really breaking the laws in the places where they are settled. If when they do so, they think that the U.S. government can help them, many of them will turn to the U.S. government and the U.S. government, and that being the consulate abroad, um, can do a certain number of things. Um, and there was this, um, in reading the files on Americans uh, and the category of protection of citizens, uh, reading those files for the 1920s and 1930s is sort of amusing because the kind of hubris of the American, the kind of entitlement of Americans who go to the consulate expecting help and, and either also the correspondence uh, leaves, you know, examples of the way in which they, they felt they were entitled to help. Mm -hmm. In some cases, they could be helped, and sometimes they needed to be helped and could be and, and were justified in getting help. But sometimes it was for things which today you can't imagine going to 
the consulate to complain that the hat maker confiscated your hat or didn't want to give it back after doing repairs. And the fact that the consular officer would go to the embassy, would go to the consulate, uh, pardon, would go to the the hat maker and get the hat back was something that I must say totally amazed me. Uh, it showed that when there is a period when there were a, you know, a good number of consular officers and a good number of Americans, but not as many as there are today in relation to the number of consular officers, uh, that apparently they had enough time on their hands to go and help out these kind of entitled women who thought that the hat maker or the dressmaker was being unfair. So there are cases where, you know, the woman gets her hat back. Um, that being said, uh, this notion that one can go and get help from one's government, it's an important sort of uh, notion. Different countries actually act upon it differently, depending on the type of trouble that the citizen gets into. There are various levels of help. Uh, some of it is kind of minimalist. Uh, the first level actually is giving citizens lists of lawyers in town who could help them. So the American embassy to this day has lists of lawyers, English speaking, uh, American trained or not, but but mostly who can help uh, citizens abroad. But so they do often um, encourage people to try and get help that way. But there are a lot of you know, L, uh, I don't know, letters, correspondence in the archives where you see that the consular officers themselves did a lot to help people. That being said, people often expected a level of help, which was beyond what either they could or would give. And one is, and this is, I think, the crux for me of the conundrum of transnationalism or the difficulties of transnationalism or what I call the limits of transnationalism, is that the home country can't always help and the being caught in between two jurisdictions can often be difficult, if not um, downright um, have results where one can end up in jail in another country with only a limited amount that the that, let's say, the U.S. could do to help out an American citizen abroad. So there are limits to the kinds of mobility and the kinds of, of help that people can get. They don't always anticipate that when something goes wrong. As I started reading it, it you know, it, it was amazing how relevant it seems to so many news stories today, whether that being sort of um, Otto Warmbier in North Korea or the recent Americans arrested in Indonesia for drug charges or even the story of uh, ISIS wives, like what do we do with the women who went to Syria and married ISIS fighters. So I, when you were writing it, were you seeing these things play out in the news as well? When I started working on this, um, less so because, well, any book takes a long time. Any books take a long time to write. And I, my questioning about transnationalism was coming up at the same time that the language about transnationalism was becoming more widespread among academics and beyond in terms of heralding the ease and the newness of mobility and circulation and crossing borders and getting around and doing being able to have multiple passports or various other aspects or attributes of transnationalism. And what has become very clear to me, though, so when I was writing it, I would say, no, it, that these elements of um, the obstructions of transnationalism were not as much in the news until very recently. 
And I'm almost you know, tempted to say that, that however, they've always existed and they depend a lot on what people have. First of all, the kinds of crimes that they've committed and to what extent the relations between their power relations between countries and to what it even but even the power relations can't necessarily get someone out of jail if they've done something uh, abroad, which has entailed uh, getting into jail. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very complicated. And so that what was in a way, the way I was seeing it was that there was this language about the um, ways in which transnationalism was a new form of mobility, of, of, of a positive form of cosmopolitanism, of having multiple identities, being able to cross borders, come back and forth, do various things. And yet it, what we've seen in the last few years, particularly, but it's not new. That's the point. It's not new that there are um, lots of, of problems involved and they can't always be resolved even when you come from a country which putatively has a very strong arm uh, that you think will be able to protect you. Now, there have been, there are many cases that one can find in the 19th and 20th century about this, of cases where people get in, into trouble and can't be helped. Um, the more recent problems of walls going up and impeding people from circulating of um, of people getting caught across borders and being arrested and then hoping that the country of origin will help them have only increased and I think become much more visible through the media in recent years. Um, And so it sort of, uh, to me, in a way, shows what I've been trying to point out, which is this limits of what the language around transnational mobility entails that, that it, it's not a kind of a, a perfectly free movement that is without risk in a way. Mm-hmm. And so you write about how class plays a role in, in this, um, that mobility is obviously much more sort of voluntary and a lot of times easier for people of, um, of upper classes. But then how does race play a part in the form of the sort of troubled citizen abroad is American protection uh, sort of uh, limited or delegated to, let's say, the white American abroad more than someone else. I have to say that in the files that I looked at, so I'm going to stick to the history that I know, mm-hmm. um, a couple things struck me. One is that you can't tell race necessarily um, in the files, because people have names that are not necessarily revealing of anything particular or uh, about their origins. Um, and people can have foreign names, but be, you know, American born. And, and uh, so th- that's one thing. And you can't tell race. You can't tell if someone is black or white through the files usually. One of the things that I assumed, which is which would mean that which would already have an impact which was that white Americans would feel more comfortable going to the embassy than black Americans. If there is any uh, suspicion that one might not be treated um, well, uh, that might limit in a, in a sense the, even the sample that of whom one finds in the, uh, in, in, in the archives. Um, That being said, when push comes to shove and when, you know, I think all groups or everybody when in trouble may try everything they can, of course, to get help. That would mean, turning to private lawyers if they can afford them, turning to the consulate. If they've also tried the, the lawyer 
then that hasn't helped, uh, or going to the consulate because one doesn't have the means to even think of going to a, uh, a private lawyer. Um, I think that it depends on the period and the groups involved. Now, the other thing has to do with there's one aspect of this which I didn't go into as in greater detail as something like um, uh, Alice Kaplan did in her book on uh, soldiers, uh, black soldiers who were um, got capital punishment after World War II for raping um, uh, French women. And yet the percentage of those who were black was far higher and who were who were thus um, given capital punishment was far higher than those who were white, who had done the same thing, but who were much less um, inculpated. So there some records can show that other records don't seem to or at least didn't seem to in what I was looking at. There seemed to be. Uh, there were certain high, well-known uh, black Americans in France in the interwar period, which is the period that I looked at the most, uh, who were there. But like some of the left bank writers didn't necessarily run as one of them. One of the left bank white writers said that they didn't want to go to the embassy and, or the consulate unless they really, really had to. So there's also this vision about who goes to be protected or who goes for help uh, related to one's relative position and what they think that help might be. Um, so I think there is definitely an element of race that would, could and would be involved. Uh, it's difficult. I can't say that I could prove it through the records that I saw. Uh, I think there is, an, uh, I could say there's an assumption that different people went to the consulate. Uh, there were some, you know, there are some, uh, there were some, I, there are some I, people who identified as black, or it was clear from their story that they uh, did go to the consulate, asked for help, asked for help finding someone abroad asked for help and then got the kind of standard answers that everybody else got, which was sometimes yes, sometimes no. But it was difficult to say that there was, I didn't find cases of outright discrimination where someone came and they said, no, they, they wouldn't help them. Um, but it's, again, this is the difficulty of some aspects of the historical record. Mm -hmm. It was interesting right, reading about some of the hostility that the left bank writers and other expat uh, writers and artists received from Americans a kind of um, a kind of distrust uh, and you know the the same suspicion. But it's also interesting to me how these writers who lived abroad we have canonized into American art. It's like what. Like the situation of Henry James, who lost his citizenship, uh, his American citizenship, um, and now he's sort of canonized as the great American writer. Um, can you? Is there anything there for for you? It's, I find it interesting this idea of somebody being um, nationalized in a specific way, kind of uh, during their life and then after their death. <laughs> That's a good point. James, however, actually knew what he was doing and he gave up his citizenship. It, it was, and, and even more so today, it's difficult to lose one's U.S. citizenship, although there were periods during the 20th century when it became easier to lose it. And in fact, people lost it without wanting to lose it, such as women who were married to foreigners um, in the middle part of the, of the, early, the first half of the 20th century. 
lost their U.S. citizenship if they if they did marry a foreigner. Um, in James's case, and so that was called ex, that was the literal meaning of expatriation was losing one's citizenship. But the loss of citizenship could be done in various ways. It could be because the person wanted to lose it, or they lost it inadvertently. Uh, the women who married foreigners didn't necessarily know they were going to lose their U.S. citizenship because the law um, made it so that women's citizenship followed their marriage status, so that mar that their and, and followed their husband's citizenship. Um, that was finally overturned in the 1922 Cable Act, so it lasted from like 1907 to 1922, and then further and then longer for women married to Asian men. But and then until the 1940s, when finally uh, American women did no longer lose their citizenship if they married foreigners. So these were cases of people who lost their citizenship uh, inadvertently. Others could lose it for reasons if they were considered traitors or if they had lived abroad, if they were naturalized citizens and had lived abroad for too long. There were various stipulations that could result in one losing one's uh, U.S. citizenship. However, in the case of James, he actually renounced his U.S. citizenship. This was, I believe, in 1917. It was a year before he died. And he did it as a protest against the, yeah, it was the early part, would have been the early part of 1917, but it was because it was a protest against the fact that the U.S. Was, had not yet entered the war, had not yet entered World War I. And he was living in Britain and he was defending the Europeans and the French and, and the British and, and French and felt that the U.S. should enter the war. There were a lot of Americans and particularly Americans abroad who saw the, the, the war unfolding before their eyes and who were much more sensitive and more engaged with the places where they lived and wanted the U.S. to come and, and then renounced his, his U.S. citizenship. So it was a case actually of um, voluntary expatriation. But what you said, which is interesting, is how people get canonized and how we focus on the writers as Americans abroad. And it turns out that not only do we focus or call James an American abroad, even though he lived for much of, you know, a good deal of his writing life, he was in, he was in France for a bit, he was then in Britain for, for quite a while. The, there are a lot of others, including the African-Americans who came and were living and writing in uh, Paris in the 1920s as well, Langston Hughes, um, Claude McKay. They, they like Hemingway, Gertrude Stein. Gertrude Stein lived there for a very long time. But Hemingway, um, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, actually, if you look at the dates, were only there for a certain period of time. They're canonized as Americans who wrote, were writing in Paris. The dates are actually, it's not as though they were living there for their entire lives, which we know because they went back, except for someone like Stein or uh, Edith Wharton. But it's, it's, the question you ask is an interesting one, is how people become famous for certain things, uh, which may represent a portion of their life as opposed to their entire life. I was sort of thinking about, as I was reading this, about all these sort of like 80s international thrillers of, you know, somebody running for the embassy gates uh, with the police hot on their trail or some assassin hot on their trail and, you know, finding refuge. Um, and it, it was sort of... It's great. It's great if it works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's great if it works. <laughs> and if you don't have to wait for somebody to answer the doorbell, it's, it's great. Um, it's, uh, 
But as far as transnationalism within art or popular culture, you know, Henry James is a kind of obvious example, or uh, Olivia Manning's books about um, World War II spent in Romania and in Egypt, um, and of course, the 80s thrillers. But are there any other examples that you particularly like? Well, Edith Wharton is the other kind of iconic writer about um, the differences between French and American uh, ways and manners. She actually wrote a book during World War One that was aimed at American soldiers who had entered yeah, once the U.S. had entered the war. She traveled to the war front and wrote a couple of uh, books during the war. They're maybe not her most literary um uh, excellent uh, books, but they at the time they were they actually had a function of explaining to American soldiers what the French were up to and why they should fight for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they one of them is called the Ways and Manners of French of the French or something like that. Um, and it's kind of both amusing and interesting to see. So it was it was really an, a, a great example of trying to do a transnational explanation of cross cultural. Uh, difference. Cross-cultural difference has today become an industry, actually, and largely aimed at businesses, businessmen, businesswomen, uh, where the point is to try and explain differences in order to reduce tensions or conflict. And there's been a lot of it in its great literature. There's a, there are a lot of, um, actually, I just picked up something called the bonjour effect, which is talking about, you know, the problems of not understanding certain things that the French do. Um, and it starts out by saying, if you don't say bonjour, when you, you know, enter and, and, and exit a, a store, you're looked upon as um, having been impolite. Uh, and these are things which it takes a long time to learn. And I sometimes forget to say bonjour <laughs> at the right time. And then <laughs> after many years living in France. So, these the novels, the um, classic writers, the contemporary writing on cross-cultural difference is always interesting because this is also one of the limits, perhaps, of transnationalism is you don't, even after a very long time, you never quite get it right. And there are differences that are cultural, that are class, that can be of various sorts. Uh, they can be political, but they can be economic uh, and social. So the to understand those things has been something which novelists as well as essayists have tried to explain for, for years on end, uh, some more or less uh, uh, with with more or less humor, with more or less seriousness, and uh, but always with a kind of a of a an interesting touch of trying to understand the other. And I think that's at the basis of what we try to do and what maybe transnationalism theoretically could be about is trying to understand the other, whether one is in one's home, understanding others who have come or whether one goes abroad and understanding the place where one where one is. But it's not as easy as it seems. And as a lot of the language around transnationalism uh, sometimes makes it seem like globalization is a kind of a fundamental aspect of modernity, which is without, which is not problematic, which is both defines the late 20th or the early 21st century, uh, which is considered to be either unproblematic or just part of the way of the new, of a new cosmopolitanism. But as you point out, and as we are seeing, there are critiques of cosmopolitanism, there are critiques of suspicions of the other which are which have come back and in ways that are that are 
very, very troublesome. And this is this too is part of the limits of what that kind of language of fluidity, of flux, of movement, of mobility, of transnationalism and globalization is about. Uh, I think we need to be attentive to the problems that are sometimes perceived and then can leave and make life difficult, uh, if not uh, seriously so for, uh, for individuals. So I think it's both part of what we see as part of our contemporary world. It certainly has a history, which is a very long-standing one, both of these forms of mobility and these forms of circulation. At the same time, they've never been without uh, difficulty, without certain kinds of limits. And today we're in actually a particular period in just the last few years in particular, where the visibility of those limits have, are becoming uh, really very, very prominent. Yeah, I find a lot of the rhetoric around the Trump administration and Brexit and the sort of uh, anti-cosmopolitanism interesting in the sense that this sort of transnationalism and expat culture has been presented as, you know, freedom uh, and liberating and uh, sophisticated and, and so on. And yet there's still only a small part of the population that can freely enter into that. Um, and it seems obvious that there's a lot of resentment about that. Um, do you think writing or talking about the limits of transnationalism and how it's not super glamorous and, and so on um, can help? some of that, I guess. Well, I think what also needs to be that we need to remember is the, the class dimension of some of the language around going abroad, leaving, you know, bad situations at home, going elsewhere is a form of freedom, is a form of liberation. When one talks about the sophisticates or the cosmopolitans, then the, uh, or the uh, kind of an expat culture, one is often looking at more of the elites that are doing it. And that's sort of the focus, which a lot of the language has been a, a lot of, it's been the focus of a lot of the language about uh, transnationalism. So I think we need to think about and remember the class dimensions. Not every transnational is an elite and not all elites are transnationals. And migrants of all sorts are also transnationals and have always had mm -hmm particularly, you know, the working, the workers um, have always had, it's never been that easy. So that's not nothing new. I'm kind of particularly interested in and find it, it uh, I mean, intriguing in a way that there are forms of xenophobia, which are very often connected to class. And so those who are um, dismissed are often more working or lower class so that the xenophobia has been related to class in that manner and or to race. And here what we're seeing is a kind of a xenophobia, which is the anti-cosmopolitan xenophobia, is now also, tar also targeting um, elites. And I think this has been a big uh, wake-up call for Europeans, uh, continental Europeans in Britain. It's one that questions the ways in which xenophobia works, uh, showing that it can be actually variety, attack variety of classes. Although up until now, I mean, it's not as though there haven't been cases in the past because even the Americans abroad, the business people that I was studying, there were times in the 
30s where there were boycotts against American products. And when so there have been moments when um, upper middle class elites have been targeted as being unacceptable others, either for their goods or for their presence. Uh, but we're seeing that now in a way which is quite, uh, quite stunning and which shows which something which I think historically needs to be even looked at more closely, the ways in which xenophobia is often linked to lower class others. Uh, here we're seeing it being linked to and, and also criticizing uh, more elite others. And so it shows both its malleability, alas, as well as. Uh, but I do think that that in many times in the past, we should have been more economic others and that those economic others were the ones who were primarily targeted. Today, we'll, it will be, we will see how this plays itself out. I mean, I just hope that the general xenophobic times will lessen. Uh, it's kind of hard to see exactly how or when that could happen. I am often both very pessimistic and slightly optimistic, thanks to studying history. The pessimism being that periods of xenophobia everywhere come and go, but they keep go. And it's hard to study the end of xenophobia and how it diminishes. But I think that's what we need to do next, because in order to maybe have better clues as to what we can do in order to uh, lessen the the, the anti-otherness of the rhetoric that has just been being blown out of proportion and just being used in, in ways that are political that are are unacceptable. Mm -hmm. So uh, so you're living in France. So what is the what's the state of the American colony in France these days compared to the era that you typically study? He, relatively well healed, but but yet vibrant and um, interestingly more democratic than Republican community. So that the business groups abroad, uh, at least this according to the what I've been able to see and, and understand through the both the groups, Liz, such as there there are Democrats abroad, there are Republicans abroad, there are you know constituted groups um, politically abroad. Uh, but the Democrats abroad have been very have been very active. And apparently more of them voted for Bernie Sanders than Hillary Clinton uh, in the last uh, run up to, in the run up to the last elections. So maybe that's also a sign of a kind of um, of those of the business and, and and also a lot of, I suppose, academics. And uh, but they're always artists, writers and people just hanging around in cafes um, but the, there is a, um, a, a community which is slid at any, at every moment. Um, so it's a community which is, you know, varied as any community is when we use the term colony or community, we shouldn't forget that they're always rife with tensions and difference as well. The community, the groups, I would say Americans abroad today are not that different than those in the in the 20s and 30s. They're there for various reasons of work, um, family, those who have uh, set up families or who are even descendants of people who have been who you know some families who've been around since the 20s or 30s. Um, so there are some, you know, long term uh, residents, the newer ones, and you still see people hanging out in cafes, you know, clutching 
um, Hemingway's A Movable Feast. Uh, so it, it's varied, but I would say that the, from just, again, my understanding of the politics, um, the politics of Americans abroad already in the 30s were not particularly visible as being particularly on the right or particularly on the left. There was some concern when Roosevelt came to um, to power that he was going to you know hurt the business interests. Today, I think there's a again there's a the, the Democrats seem to outweigh the Republicans. So the it's a it's a mixed bag community, but in, I don't see it as so different really from from the 20s and 30s. And that was what interested me actually retrospectively was knowing the community in Paris today was realizing that this was not new. It was not just a post-World War II phenomenon, but that it was not that dissimilar to those who had come to live and work in the 20s and 30s. So I don't see great differences. I would have to think about it longer to decide. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.